And thank you, Ashley. It is an opportunity for us to continue to be about what we talk about at this church and this campus of being a people who live generously, who give our lives away because we have received his life. My name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here at Bethel. And if you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. If uh, you've been tracking along with us, you know we've made it quite a ways through our study through the book of 1 John. We are now in the fourth chapter. We're going to finish this up, Lord willing, at the end of the month of November. As you're turning to 1 John chapter 4, I want to remind you that if you are a member here at Bethel, we want to continue to encourage you to be someone who lives generously, to respond financially to the needs of the ministries of this church. We ask our members to do this. If you're visiting with us this morning, we're delighted that you're here. We're not asking you to give. That's not your expectation. We expect, however, our membership to support and to fund and to finance and to fuel the ministries of this church. And please understand and recognize that I'm making this ask before I preach so that you don't feel like you have to respond according to the level of the goodness of the sermon. That's, that's a bad model. We don't ever want to be about that. Now, as we're going to start talking this morning in the book of 1 John chapter 4, I want to talk about this idea of spirituality. Have you noticed in our world, there are some things that seem false, but are actually true. For example, there are more tigers in captivity in the United States than there are in the wild worldwide. That's crazy, but that's true. More tigers in captivity in the U.S. than there are in the wild worldwide. Second fact that's actually, it seems false, but it's actually true. China, as a nation, used more concrete from the years 2011 to 2013 than the U.S. did in the entire 20th century. That's a bunch of concrete. That's actually true. It seems like it should be false. It's actually true. Third thing that seems false but is actually true. Bananas are berries. Strawberries are not. And that's bananas. <laughs> bananas are berries. Strawberries are not. At the same time, have you noticed that there are some things that seem true but are actually false? Napoleon was a short guy. Actually, he was not. He was 5'6" unusually tall for his day. That's interesting. Maybe you've heard it said, if you drop a penny from the top of the Empire State Building, you could kill someone. Patently false. Because of air resistance and all these other things, it's going to achieve maximum terminal velocity of about 30 to 40 miles per hour. It would really ruin your day, won't kill you. So have at it, says me. Maybe you've heard it said, don't touch a baby bird or its mother will abandon it. It seems like it should be true. It's actually false. Handle them away. Go to town. Moms will forgive everything. You've heard it said, perhaps, that it'll take seven years to digest gum. <laughs> no, praise God, not true. And ew, why are you swallowing gum in the first place? That's disgusting. It's not true. Or being a very spiritual person makes you really wise and mature and correct. Also false. Not true. Now, I wanted to talk about spirituality because ever increasingly in our day and age, especially in the 21st century, spirituality is what I call a cheer word. It's a cheer word. Everybody applauds and instinctively, intuitively respects spirituality. And I get it. 
Doctrine is not a cheer word. If spirituality is a cheer word, doctrine is a chump word. I get it. Maybe when you hear the word doctrine, you want to react like you reacted when we were studying through our series in the book of Esther. And every time someone says the name of Haman, you're all supposed to hiss. Haman, hiss. Well, oftentimes in the 21st century, when someone says doctrine, people hiss. Let's put away the doctrine and just love a little more. Sing a very popular KBNA Christian song. Yeah. No, that's very, very bad. I know that doctrine is a chump word. Many people are applauded for declaring that they are a very spiritual person. Well, of course they're a very spiritual person because every human being ever is both spiritual and physical. It's kind of like when you hear a football coach say, we're going to play a really physical game. As opposed to what? Sitting in lotus position and imagining sacking the quarterback? How do you? Of course it's a physical game, by definition. Every person is, of course, a spiritual person. But what they mean, of course, is that they're very philosophical and introspective and in touch with their energy and exceedingly tolerant of everyone else. Doesn't that sound awesome? That they're just kind. And, of course, kindness is all this world really needs right now, isn't it? Is it? There's a famous Frenchman named Jacques Derrida. Jacques Derrida is commonly thought of as the father of postmodernism, of postmodern thinking. Jacques said that there is no such thing as objective or absolute truth. He said famously, there is nothing but the text. He didn't mean the Bible. He just meant words on a page. There's nothing but the text. There's no meaning other than what you say it means. There's no context. There's no author's intent. It's whatever you think it means is what it means. Whatever I think it means is what it means. And if those things don't line up, so be it. It doesn't matter. There is no objective truth. There is only the text. Now, that's an interesting idea that is actually caught speed. And then someone comes along, oh, I don't know, with a Bible in hand and says, mm, actually, there is truth and doctrine does matter. And that makes all kinds of people all kinds of uncomfortable because Jacques Derrida and his postmodern thinking told us that kindness and tolerance and subjectivity is all that really matters. But there actually is objective truth. It is absolute, and we can actually know it. So that's going to lead us to our big idea this morning. It goes very simply like this. Truth wins. Truth wins. At the end of the day, at the end of the age, at the end of life, truth wins. In every era, I think our God wants his people to be reminded of this fundamental reality. Truth wins. Now remember, we're in a book on First uh, John. John loved the Lord, was the disciple that Jesus loved, and therefore he loved the Lord's people. And what he's writing to imbue to them, to, to spread all over them, is this certainty, that they would have this abiding assurance. That's the theme of the book of First John, that the readers, the hearers, the recipients would have abiding assurance. So we're going to continue on. First John chapter 4. I'm going to read these first six verses, and then we'll unpack these. John starts off in 1 John chapter 4, Beloved. Now, I know that we have a tendency to run past some of these common words in our Bibles, but I, I want you to understand that this very first word in 1 John chapter 4 is the gospel. He's giving them, as a good pastor, as a good apostle, he's giving them their identity that transcends every other notion. Oh, but we're Ephesians. Doesn't matter. Oh, we're in the western province of Asia, according to the Roman province delineations. 
John says, no, you are beloved. That is the thing that is most pronounced about you. You are the recipients of God's unconditional love. That's the gospel. There is a God, and he is great, and he is glorious, and he is sovereign. But it's only good news if he also loves you. It's terrible news to have a great, glorious, great, sovereign God if he doesn't also love you. John says, beloved, agapetoi, you are the ones that God loves for his sake. Not because of anything that you are or have done or could possibly ever do. You are loved unconditionally. That's the gospel. So he starts off with that. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. This is God's word. What is John doing here? Well, you might remember that at the end of last week, we finished off chapter 3, where John says that we are indwelled by God's spirit. God's gift to us has been his spirit. Now, you have to remember, in John's day, when he wrote this, he was not including chapter and verse markings. That gets added many, many centuries later in medieval times to help us read through the passage. There's no divide in John's mind. So the, the thought goes like this. God has given us his spirit to indwell, to lead us, to give us direction and truth. But don't test or don't trust every spirit. There's a continuation of thought between chapter 3 and chapter 4. I'm not telling you to sharpie out the chapter markers. Don't do that. But understand that there's a continuation of thought. God's given us the Spirit. There are messages and messengers all over the place. Don't trust all of them. You must test all of them. So he says here in verse 1, Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. It was very popular in John's day, as in our day, to say, well, I am very spiritual. I'm a very spiritual person. I, I've thought through these things. I have an idea. I have a world view. John says, you have to test that all out. You have to understand there is all sorts of error and false being spun. So John seems to say very quickly, don't believe those false messages or messengers. In other words, Christians are not to be gullible. Christians are not to be gullible. Well, we just want to be tolerant and accepting. No, no, not in that sense. We do not. We are not to be gullible. In John's day, as in ours, there was all sorts of people that were going around saying all sorts of errors to try to corrupt and corrode the gospel. Paul faced it very early on in Galatia with the Judaizers who were trying to add grace plus, gospel plus. And Paul said, may it never be. John was already starting to face this stuff as far west as Ephesus. We know that What's probably going on is these false teachers have tried to corrupt and corrode the gospel with Gnosticism, saying that there's all this secret knowledge. In fact, John's writing to these people in Ephesus on Paul's farewell journey. He doesn't go back through Ephesus. Instead, he calls for the elders of Ephesus in Acts chapter 20 to meet him 
in Miletus, which is another little city outside of Ephesus. Because he says, if I go back in there, I'll get distracted, I'll stay too long. And so the elders of Ephesus come out and meet him. And Paul tells them, I'm warning you, ravenous wolves are going to come in and they're going to sow false doctrine. I'm warning you. I was with you for three years warning you. That's really interesting. Paul tells them, for three years in the school of Tyrannus, all I did was warn you that this was going to happen. And some 50 years on later, by the time John writes this epistle, it's happening in spades. A lot of crazy things were going on with all of these teachings. Now, Ephesus was a unique, unique area. In the city of Ephesus was the temple of Diana, or what they would call Artemis of the Ephesians. This temple was one of the ancient, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was absolutely enormous. Not only was it this massive temple in Ephesus, this thing even had a, a statue of their fertility goddess, Artemis or Diana, that apparently Acts 19 tells us was a giant black meteor that fell from the sky and then they carved all sort of mm, fertility emblems on this meteor and set it in the temple. And then it would do all sorts of unexpected, unexplainable things. It was weird. And so the people of God were like, hmm, their temple's got a meteorite that does freaky things. We got an old man who smells like cabbage named John. I don't know. I'm kind of starting to have some doubts about which one's the best way to go. John says, I do not want you to have any doubts. I want you to have abiding assurance. It's very important, John seems to intimate. The supernatural is not the same as divine. The supernatural is not the same as, as divine. In the Old Testament, when Moses throws down his rod and it becomes a snake, Pharaoh's music, uh, magicians, they throw down their rods and they become snakes. When Pharaoh's magicians see what Moses has done by turning the Nile to blood, they turn the Nile into even more blood. That's super helpful. Thanks for doing that, extra magicians. We didn't need more blood. Anyway, there are supernatural powers at work. It's very important for us to understand this. John says these false prophets have gone out. Now, here's something we have to understand. It's not like they were walking around with members-only snap-shoulder jackets that say, false prophet. Nobody knows they're a false prophet. Nobody wants to be a false prophet. Everybody assumes they're the good guy. Everybody assumes that they're right. Everybody assumes that they're right and that if you don't agree with them, you're wrong. Can you just imagine such arrogance? Can you just imagine a political, social climate where everyone's assuming they're right and... Oh, wait, I'm sorry. I was dreaming. I'm okay now. John says, beware of these guys. They're not trying to be deceptive. They're sincere in their error. So... John says, many false prophets have gone out into the world. Verse 2, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Now, that is a massive verse. There are two errors that are equally and oppositely being sown in Ephesus from a doctrine standpoint. On the one hand, there was a whole lot of these Gnostic philosophers that were saying Jesus couldn't possibly be a man because material things are bad. Spirit is good. Spirituality is good. He didn't really become a human. Therefore, whatever allegedly happened on the cross doesn't matter a hill of beans. It doesn't actually save you at all. You have to discern and discover some secret knowledge that, of course, we happen to hold, and that's the way you get saved. Now, that would rock your assurance big time if you were taught 
Whatever happened on the cross has no bearing on your life whatsoever. Or there was a different teacher named Serenthus. Serenthus said that Jesus was just a dude, just a guy from Nazareth. But at his baptism, the Christ comes on to him and he becomes the Christ. And he lives a pretty great life. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before he goes to the cross, the spirit departs from him. Which is why Jesus on the cross says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's called Serinthianism. And so again, whatever happened on the cross doesn't matter a hill of beans. To you, you have to figure out some secret knowledge and do some special stuff to get saved. Now, if you're taught those kinds of things, that would really rock your assurance. John will not have anything of it. He gets fierce. He responds very, very passionately. He says, this is how you know. Not just that they confess that Jesus existed, not just they confess that Jesus was a guy who lived in Judea. No, no, no. You have to confess and be congruent with the message of the Spirit that says, Jesus, the sendable self of the Godhead, came in human form. You have to confess that any other message is not of God. Any other glancing blow that might sound, eh, is not from God. Either he came in the flesh and is forever bound up in our material, physical humanity. He himself is Jacob's ladder. He is that which draws heaven to earth and draws earth to heaven. It's him. It's a person. And any other message that does not affirm that is not from God, no matter how good it sounds. That's very interesting. Verse 3, he says, And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Now, why were these false teachers doing this? Were they just mean and needed a girlfriend? Perhaps, but no, not really. They weren't just looking for something to do. Just as prior to his ascension, Jesus issues forth the great commission and tells his disciples, go, teaching them, making disciples, baptizing them. In the same way, the enemy has issued forth and continues to issue forth the great confusion. Now, he can't win. He knows that he's not going to win, but he will literally fight like hell against the people of God until he's utterly finally cast out. And so he sends all these glancing blows. He never knocks on your front door, kicks it in, and gives you some absolute abject tomfoolery. He would never do that. He wraps it and spins it very, 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 very close. Oh, it's Jesus. Isn't he great? Isn't he wonderful? Man, he lived such a great and perfect life. You should really live more like him but you don't, do you? You should try harder to be better, to think more clearly. It's a heresy from the very pits of Hades. The spirit of Antichrist is already in the world. Are these false teachers just bored with nothing else to do? No, please understand. It's actually very serious stuff. There is a darkness that is trying to thwart, trying to invert and warp and pervert the commission of Christ. And we're always going to be facing that. And if you and I think, well, I've been to church several times in my life. I live in East Texas. I'm impervious to that kind of stuff. Think again. This is a wake-up call from the Apostle John. Now, verses 4, 5, and 6 are fascinating. John gets as abrupt and emphatic as he possibly can. He drops these three pronouns in the emphatic position. Just trust me on that. It goes, you, they, we. 
It's a very strange way to write this, but in these next three verses, it's you, they, we. Let me explain. He says, verse 4, little children, you are from God. I love the verb tenses that John uses here. These are super important. You are, present tense, from God and have overcome them, past tense. See what John's doing there? You are already from God. He wants them to have an abiding assurance. You are from God and you have overcome them. Overcome is one of John's favorite verbs. It's the Greek word nikao, where we get our word for Nike, for victory, for overcoming. In fact, John also writes the book of Revelation, where his theme of the entire book of Revelation is overcomers, winners, those who conquer are those who crave Christ. Full stop, that's Revelation. Overcomers, those who survive and make it through all the stuff that will come in Revelation, are those who crave Christ. You have overcome already. You are, present tense, from God. Verse 3. Oh, sorry, verse 4. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. This is how you know. Was I ever indwelled by the Spirit of God? Then I ever will be. Was I ever indwelled by the Spirit of God? Then I ever will be. Have abiding assurance. Maybe things have gotten dark and cloudy. Maybe things have gotten confusing. Maybe things have gotten very, very anxious and distressing. You've overcome already. Because he who is, present tense, in you is greater than he that is in the world. There's this wonderful lie that says that God and the devil are at war with one another, fighting this tooth and nail battle. False. No contest. No contest whatsoever. He who is in you is very God of very God, and he is greater than the one who is in the world trying to confuse us. Have abiding assurance. One of the great central passages of his entire epistle. You've overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. You are from God. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. They're the purveyors of errant ideas. They're from a world system of Christlessness. They are from their father, the devil. That's harsh, I know. But Jesus said it in John chapter 8, and Mike said it two weeks ago. And so when those two are in agreement, you know it's got to be true. They are from their father, the devil. Why do they speak the things that they speak? Because it works and is well-received. Believe it or not, we communicators are practical and pragmatic. We like to say things that people agree with. Often we don't. But whatever they were purveying was actually being well-received. Why was it being well-received? Because it is precisely what they wanted to hear. They liked the idea of finding some secret knowledge, elevating themselves above anybody else, and finding the secrets to salvation. It sounds really good. It tickles their ears. The first rule of mass media way back then and even now is give the people what they want. And you'll always find a willing and receptive audience. Even 2,000 years ago, people found that declaring a popular message was way easier and way better than saying that the divine had become flesh who died innocently for me, the guilty, substitutionarily to take away all of my error. That's not a real popular message. It seems unfair. And those who are really spiritual would never think that way. Turns out, truth wins. Those of us who are spiritual do think that way. Verse 6, he says, You are overcomers. They are from the world. We are from God. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. 
Now, John is almost certainly talking about the apostles here, not just the whole church. He's talking about the apostles specifically. Sounds a little bit arrogant. You want to know if you're right? Agree with me. Yeah, but John can say that because he's an apostle, and he spent time with Jesus in his earthly ministry and the risen Lord Jesus and was writing Scripture. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. This is how we know. Whoever knows God listens to us. But how can that be true of us 2,000 years ago? Because John was old, but he ain't this old. He's gone now. Well, just like Paul wrote in his letter to, oh, let's see, who was that? The Ephesians. Do you see the centrality of Ephesus? He says, the church is built on the teaching of the prophets and the apostles. We listen to them by knowing the word of God they gave us. The Bible literally is the very words of God. And those who reject the teaching of the apostles and ultimately scripture are not of God. It's a very important aspect of our abiding assurance. So, so how do we respond and listen to the word of God? Generally at this point, some preacher likes to try to guilt and shame you into having a devotional or a quiet time in the morning in Hebrew and the evening in Greek because that's what super spiritual people do. You've got to have your seven highlighters and your coffee and your Instagram at the ready. No, I have no interest in that whatsoever. Anytime somebody's reading their Bible out of duty and obligation, I would love for them to stop. Please, please. This is the very words of God. What I'm encouraging all of us, on whatever floor we're on or wherever we're watching from home, is the next time you hear the Word of God preached in a church service or, or taught in a Bible study or a life group, that you would beg God to make it so delicious as to fill every want and craving in your soul. Because you know what will happen? He will. The next time you listen to a radio message, for those of you who still know what radio is, or a podcast, and the word of God is taught, that you would beseech God, would you make this so scrumptious to my soul that only it will suffice in nourishing my need? You know what? God will do that. And when you and I fall ever increasingly in love with the beauty and the wisdom that is the teaching of the apostles, the word of God, then no one will be able to stop you from having your devotional or quiet time. It's just what feeds you to survive. Don't ever want to guilt and shame anybody into you have to go read your Bible. Please stop it. Here's what I know. You and I will always do what we want. It's how we're made. You will always do only and whatever you want. Now, you might think, I do some hard things and sacrifice for my kids. Right, because you value your kids. You want them to be happy. You and I will always do what we want. What I want is for us to want what God wants for us. In James chapter 1, verse 21, James says, Receive the word of God with meekness. The implanted word. Isn't that great? Receive that which is implanted already. So that when the living word inside of you comes into proximity with the written word on the page, something happens. Megan even said it this morning, whether we feel it or not, something happens inside us and we are being changed. Whether we recognize it, appreciate it, feel it or not. It's interesting. John is often known as the apostle of love. The disciple that Jesus loved. who's always telling us to love one another. But according to John here in these passages... The most loving thing we can do for one another and to one another is to be dispensers and holders of truth. Because at the end of the age, truth wins. 
Let me apply this very, very quickly if I can. Three very quick implications from this text. Number one goes like this. God has a worldview. Well, duh. But that matters. God has a worldview. A worldview is just that. It's a way that you view your world, the way you understand how it works. All of us, every human being ever has a worldview. That means every single one of us has a framework that we use, probably subconsciously, to determine what is true. We also have a framework, all of us, that tells us what we value and want the most. In reality, not just what we want people to think we value and want the most. I always joke, you can tell me that your favorite artist is Bob Dylan, but I look at your Spotify and it's all Debbie Gibson. I see you, McGill. I got it. All of us have this framework that we construct that actually tries to help us obtain and achieve what we truly want. We all view the world according to what we think is going to give us a life that works. Let me say that again because that's important. If you don't know this about yourself, you need to know this about yourself. All of us view the world according to what we think is going to give us a life that works. Now, in past generations, that sent people on a truth quest. What things are true that I can trust and I can therefore build my life upon them? But times they are a-changing, said the Guthries. More recently, people are generally on a happiness quest. What are the things that will make me feel good and have a nice life? What is it that actually feels good? And unfortunately, our world is marvelously equipped to address both of those quests with all sorts of error and distraction. But God has a worldview. I just want you to think about that. God sees the world, and he sees it rightly, and he invites us to see the world through his eyes. Wouldn't it be foolish to try to see the world through any other lens other than God's? Of course that would be foolish. God's view of the world is that the world was created in perfect beauty and wonder, but now it is fallen and it is corrupt. God's view of the world is that because of his love for those people who bear his image, he sent his very image, the Son of God, his sendable self, to die innocently for the guilty. That's how God sees the world, through that lens. His view of the world is that there is access to his love, and to see the truth of who he is and what he's done, there is an objective, absolute truth to it. The life that is built on and around that truth is the only life that works. So you may say, I'm a very spiritual person, but if your life is built on any other truth, that objective truth that God holds most precious, your life is not going to work at some level. The only, I'm not saying your life's going to be easy, but the only life that works is the one that is built around God's view of the world. We adopt God's worldview through his word. It is the only infallible source of truth. All sorts of things come at us. Tradition, reason, all sorts of logic and science and experience and emotion. God's word is the only infallible source of truth we have access to. The author, unlike Jacques Derrida, this author, our God, absolutely intended and intends to convey his meaning to us. And so may we ever grow to see the world through God's eyes because truth wins. Number two, very quickly. Isms become wasms. Kind of proud of that one, actually. Isms become wasms. An ism is just some construct of belief. But if it is not the true ism, it quickly will simply become a wasm. Serinthus, 
Arius, the guy who said there was a time when Christ was not, Serenthus, Arius, and Jacques Derrida, they are all dead, and they died in their error. But Jesus is alive. Come on. Jesus. No, I'll just, I'll just do it for you. It's good. All of the other isms, whether it's nationalism, patriotism, activism, tolerancism, are all basically good things. They are. But when those good things become the best thing to us, the Bible, pure and simple, calls that idolatry, and it will not last. That ism, whatever it is, is on the fast track to become a wasm. The news and the media used to convey, very simply, information. But then they discovered that that's not really sufficient. They realized that it is way more profitable to convey affirmation. Maybe you still think you're going to the news for information. You're not. You're going to the news for affirmation. You're looking for those people who agree with you, who will energize your pre-existing worldview. And by the way, if you don't know this already, that's how social media is engineered. You are little more than an algorithmic data cluster at which information is fed to you scientifically to affirm your predisposed dispositions. We used to hear information Now we're being offered affirmation, but interestingly, the word of God, the source of truth, offers neither. It's not giving us information. It's not even giving us affirmation. In fact, truth, it's trying to put us to death, 1 Corinthians 3. It's trying to put us to death so that the in Christ us can actually live. That's what the word of God does. It does not offer information. It does not offer affirmation. It offers transformation, which is better still. There's always going to be some newly spun fad that's going to attract and allure, whether some overemphasis on the end times and prophecy or on spiritual gifts or even on tolerance or acceptance or other belief structures. Let me just speak very directly and specifically now. Critical theory, universalism, pluralism, coexistism, all of these things and on and on. If it doesn't hold up the truth of the gospel, it simply has no staying power. Don't be dismayed. Don't be discouraged. Don't be derailed. Truth wins. Third and finally, the Spirit of God points to the Son of God. Full stop. The Spirit of God points to the Son of God. That's how you know. Hey, I like this conversation we're having over a chai tea, but, but what, what you're saying seems to like take attention away from Jesus. What you're saying seems to be putting attention on all of your efforts. The Spirit of God points to the Son of God full stop. The Godhead Trinity is in and of itself a sending community of love. That's what our God is. The Father loves the Spirit and the Son, and the Son is always going to demure to the Son. J.I. Packer says the ministry of the Spirit is a floodlight. The ministry of the Spirit is to simply shine the brightest light it possibly can on Jesus, the Son of God. Look how marvelous. Look what, how beautiful he is. Look what he did. Look at him. Look at him. Look at him. That's what the Spirit does. John talked about the ministry of the Spirit in his own gospel in chapters 14 through 16. I take it that here again in this epistle, John's commenting on his own gospel. The helper, he indwells us and he points us to Jesus, who he was, what he did, what he accomplished, and who we are therefore in him. The Spirit of God, here are these three quick subpoints very quickly. The Spirit of God is never going to tell you that you should be a better person or that you need to try harder in your own strength or that God is disappointed in you. That is not from the Spirit of God. 
that is some message of the world or your own flesh or your enemy. The Spirit of God is never going to tell you that there are multiple paths up the mountain to salvation, to just do your best to compromise and coexist. No, the Spirit of God would never take any light off the Son of God whatsoever, ever. The Spirit of God is never going to tell you that you need to compromise to believe about Jesus, to win some people. Never going to say that because he is a floodlight. This is no, 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 no. Just look at Jesus. Just look at Jesus. You know what Paul does while he's in Ephesus for three years? Not once does he mention Diana or Artemis. He just keeps holding up Jesus because that's what the Spirit does as well. The Spirit of God is always moving in and around you to make a really big deal about the Christ who came in the flesh, to die innocently for the guilty as a substitution. The Spirit of God reminds me that I'm lousy, but I'm loved. And so many Christians simply need to be reminded of that. You're lousy, but you're loved unconditionally, beloved. That is truth, and that provides abiding assurance. It's what John wants for his people. It's what Jesus wants for his people. So let's receive it. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for who you are, for what you have done in Christ to redeem us to yourself and to one another. God, I thank you for the gospel. I thank you for loving us unconditionally despite all the reasons and the evidences not to. Father, I pray if there's anyone here this morning on any of these floors or listening remotely who is not a believer, who is listening to errant messages from the world, that you will speak with truth, that you will penetrate the calloused heart, the seared soul, and that you would give them the grace to believe that there is Christ. He, innocent, died for the guilty. Father, if there is anyone here who is simply become, to become discouraged or derailed, I pray, God, that you would use truth to bring them back to the center. Father, as we are about to sing, you are the breather of the stars. You have redeemed our ravaged souls. So may we sing and respond as if it were true. We pray this in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.